Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids just like yours. And all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. In the early morning hours of August 11th, 1979, a 74-year-old woman was asleep in her den when she awoke to find a black man had broken in through the window. By the light of her television, he brutalized and raped her for over an hour. After stealing $70, the assailant pulled the telephone cord out of the wall and fled through the back door. When the victim finally was able to contact the police, she was taken to the hospital but in her bloodied state, they decided against performing a rape kit. However, other biological evidence was collected from the scene. The victim helped the Georgia Bureau of Investigation develop a composite sketch, and immediately one of the investigators said that it looked like a young man named John Jerome White who was a person of interest in a string of burglaries. They arrested John and collected physical samples from him, as well as his driver's license. Even though none of the physical evidence was a match for John, the victim identified him at first in a photo array and then again at a live lineup. And after all that, how could anyone deny her gut-wrenching courtroom identification? So they didn't. This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today we have a unique story, but not rare. And it's just as tragic every time something like this happens. When a black man is misidentified by a white victim, so there's this double victimization that happens. And it was much easier for these things to happen before the dawn of DNA testing. Not that they don't still happen today, because they do. But here to discuss the matter is the former executive director of the Georgia Innocence Project. She's now with the Fulton County Conviction Integrity Unit. 
So Amy Maxwell, without further ado, thank you for joining us here again on Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for having me. And now the man she represented, Mr. John Jerome White. You know, I'm sorry for the reason why you're here joining us today, but we are really honored to have you. Thank you. You're very welcome. So, John, as we like to do here, you know, it's sort of almost a tradition now. We like to spend some time getting to know you a bit, letting our audience get to know you a bit. Uh, So can you tell us a little bit about what your life was like prior to all this insanity? Uh, Well, I'm from a small, what we like to call a railroad town uh, in Manchester, Georgia. Uh, That's in South Georgia. I'm the only boy. There's six girls. I was raised by my grandmother. Used to love to do things for my grandmother, you know, uh, cut wood and working in gardens and things of that nature. You know, growed up and got a chance to experience, you know, what we we like to call Crosstown. That's, you know, that city of Manchester, you know. And I kind of got away from my grandmama's, you know, hold on me, you know, making sure I was doing the right thing and things. And during the time all this occurred, you know, I had started to do little minor burgers and things of that nature here around Manchester. Convenience stores and merchant stores like that there. I was going in the wrong direction. It was going totally against the way I was brought up. You know, it all happened to me, you know, and the way things happen, I felt like it was God's way of putting that that roadblock in my path. Well, that sounds like one way of taking responsibility for the actual wrong that you've admitted to doing in the past. And I suppose thinking of your wrongful conviction like that is a way to make peace with it. But I mean, sometimes on this show, we speak with folks that are pulled completely out of obscurity to be tried for a crime that they had absolutely nothing to do with. But in your case, and this doesn't make it right by any means, but you were a known entity to the police because of those burglaries down in Manchester. But the crime in question wasn't burglary, it was rape. And you had never exhibited any sort of violence and certainly no sexual violence before. So it's really a hell of a label to get saddled with. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. You know, I always been the type that, you know, I respect the women. You know, I was raised by my grandmother, you know, all my life that, you know, that's all I've been around, you know, women and it was kind of hard to believe that, you know, I would be in charge with, you know, the whole type of crime. Nevertheless, the burglaries had you on the radar of the local police when this terrible crime occurred. And it was in the early morning hours of August 11th, 1979, when a man broke into the Manchester, Georgia home of a 74-year-old woman. Well, what we know is that she was in the den, she was asleep on her couch, and she had her sheets on the couch. And she did have the light on in the kitchen, and she had her television on. So that was the only light available to her. She also wore prescription glasses, and um, she didn't have her glasses on. And someone broke in through a window in the den. He attacked her. He raped her. He brutalized her for over an hour. Then he ripped out the telephone cords out of the wall and went out the back door. He also stole $70 in cash from her purse. Now, she eventually called the cops and was taken to the hospital. But do I have this right? That no rape kit was collected? No rape kit was collected. They said because she was so damaged during the rape. The rape was so brutal and there was just so much blood. They made a determination that they couldn't get any viable evidence. And, you know, you got to remember back then they were only able to do blood typing. So I think that 
their thought process may have been there's so much of her blood, you know, his blood type is going to just get all mixed up in there. They may also have not wanted to, I mean, got to remember, this is a small town, right? They might have been concerned that she was already so traumatized that they didn't want to do any more of an examination. You know, she was 74 years old and I, I can't even imagine how how she was presenting to the doctors. Obviously, they should have done a sexual assault kit. They certainly would today, but they did not. And since there was no rape kit, there's no seminal evidence, but there was other blood and biological evidence at the scene, which we'll get into in a bit. But in 1979, as Amy mentioned, all we had was serology, which had its own limitations. DNA testing, of course, was not available yet. And I can't imagine collecting a rape kit would have been an easy thing to do with this poor 74-year-old woman in the state that she was in. But the fact is she did somehow survive. She must have been some tough lady. So what happened next in this investigation? Well, I should point out that this is such a small town that their local police didn't do the investigation. They brought in the state police, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And when they were collecting evidence, they collected the bed sheet that was on the couch. And the bed sheet had hairs. Now, I will say that at trial, they only thought there was one hair. It turned out there were several hairs on that bed sheet, and they preserved that. Now, I will say that at trial, the hairs were discussed. To use the parlance of the time, they were negroid hairs, and that's pretty much all they could say about them. They did a microscopic examination of them, and they said that they looked almost exactly alike, that they were almost positive that they were from the same person. Of course, what that is, is a human eye is looking at two hairs, and they're pubic hairs, so they're very small hairs, right? And saying, oh yeah, they look alike. You know, and, and back then, that was good evidence, right? Not so much now. Yeah, definitely not. We did a whole episode, by the way, of wrongful conviction junk science that Josh Dubin hosted about hair microscopy. And we'll get a link to it in the episode bio. But to think that someone could compare hairs from a suspect and a crime scene just by looking and match them to the exclusion, by the way, of all other potential suspects, everybody else, all other people on the whole planet is absolutely bonkers. Now, remember, they used to do that all the damn time. Now, they mentioned that these hairs were from a black man, as the victim had already told them. But what about this piece of skin that I read about? Yes. So apparently when the man came in through the window, he cut himself on his hand. And there was literally like a triangular piece of his palm that was also recovered from the scene. And it's unclear whether or not they did serological testing on that either. But we're going to come back to the piece of skin in a bit. But at this point, they moved on to relying on cross-racial identification. Now, study after study has shown, these are studies in which they used a control group that has not seen the crime, that that control group tends to be more accurate than victims or witnesses. So get this. Cross-racial identification has been proven to be less accurate than guessing. So if you actually didn't even witness the crime and were shown a lineup, 
you'd have a better chance of picking the person just by guessing than someone who did witness the crime. It's an amazing thing, but it's true. Look it up. I encourage you. So they do a composite sketch of her attacker that she saw in the dark, the only light from the kitchen and the television while she's being traumatized, right? So she does do a composite sketch and there is a GBI agent who is part of the investigation who says, hey, that looks a lot like John White. And then everything, of course, is off and running at that point. So, John, this wasn't a big town. So I'm sure word traveled fast. At that point, had you heard about what had happened? We had heard that, you know, this particular lady had got raped. You know, I didn't think much of it. I really didn't, you know. And uh, when all this occurred, they would suspect me for doing those minor burgers around town. And come to find out that they were looking for me. So I decided to just up and leave Manchester. You know, I was at the age of 19 then. And I went to a little small town in uh, Decor, Georgia, where I had some people, you know, some cousins where I stand. So this crime happened on August 11th, and they finally caught up with you in Decor, Georgia, and drove you back to Merriweather County around September 21st. On the ride back, they kept on asking me questions about this here particular crime uh, involving a 70-something-year-old lady. And uh, I had a venereal disease called gonorrhea. And, you know, being a little smart addict like I was, I, you know, I didn't answer the question directly. You know, when they kept on asking me, I said, well, if I did it, she got gonorrhea. They took that, and I like to say they ran with it. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. When they got me back to the county jail, they took uh, hair samples, fingerprints, saliva samples, blood from me. They took my driving license and my social security card and everything. And, you know, they locked me up. So they took those samples in order to run tests on all the physical evidence that they had, tried to match the hair, like we already mentioned. They probably did some serological testing with a patch of skin in your blood. We don't know that for sure, but that would seem like it would have been the least thing they could have done. And had any of it matched you, they would have been shouting it from the rooftops. Now, they already had this composite sketch that they thought looked like you. Uh, they had to catch up with you a few towns away, and you were being held for the burglaries. My grandma came to get me out the next day after, you know, they had brought me back to Midwest County. That's when she was informed that I was being charged with, you know, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, and burglary. Curiously, she got that news before they had even taken your driver's license to be viewed by the victim in an alleged photo array. I don't know if they took just my driving license or they took many pictures. They say they took a photo array to her apartment, but I'm assuming they just took my driving license. We don't know much about it because, of course, you know, they didn't record a lot of information. They certainly didn't record the photo array. And I don't believe we ever found that photo array, did we, John? 
No. I don't think we've ever seen those photos. So we don't know who else was in the photo and how well they matched either the composite or John. Now, maybe this composite sketch looked enough like you that your likeness was already imprinted in her mind. So photo array or not, she had been primed to pick you with that composite in mind. And it's also possible that they only brought along your driver's license rather than a number of other photos that favored your features. We don't know. But now you had been chosen from this alleged photo array and things started going downhill fast. A few, you know, weeks after they did all this here, they, they performed a lineup. It was just us in a room and me standing about 10 feet from her along with a few other guys. And I couldn't believe, you know, it was just coincidence because they brought another person up there of a place I had robbed. And she didn't pick me out. But they bring this old lady in there and, and she picked me out. Like I said, I'm quite sure they didn't take now one of them other guy pictures that was in that lineup to her. And I'm the only somebody she had seen recently on a photo. Again, we're not sure what happened at that alleged photo lineup, as no documentation has ever been found. But I want our audience to note that eyewitness misidentification is a contributing factor in 69% of all known wrongful convictions. And in this case, we have a cross-racial misidentification. So as I mentioned earlier, in study after study, cross-racial identifications are actually less accurate than guessing. But what about the robbery victim? Also white? She was white. And that would have been the correct identification. (laughs) It's crazy, but... Okay, so cross-racial or not, she had already been primed to pick you out of the lineup by seeing your driver's license, in addition potentially to a composite sketch that may have favored you or, you know, pointed towards you. I mean, 1970s Georgia, you were already known to police, and then an old white lady who had been brutally attacked identified you. I hate to say it, but I think your fate was pretty much sealed. Did you have... A court-appointed or a paid attorney? At first, they, they gave me a court-appointed attorney, but my mom and them, you know, they raised some money and they, they hired, you know, a Sanford Bishop. And he's now a U.S. representative, right? He was a part of the legislature back, you know, when I was going to trial. They took me to trial. You know, they picked a jury, which was mainly all white. They presented the evidence, the fingerprints. They said they collected at the scene of the crime. They said all of them were spudged to the point that they couldn't get no kind of identification off of them. They say the blood test came back negative. I don't know what they had tested. I don't know if they tested the skin. I don't know what it was. But the crime lab investigator said the hair sample could be mine. I know they brought up the pigmentation of a black person's hair, and they said it was all of it was similar. Which really, this technician was testifying that the hair was a black person's, and you were also black, which is just not that probative. And... What was it that they tested your blood against? I don't really remember what it was they tested with the blood. I have to be honest with you. But also, you know, we talked about the piece of skin, right? That there was uh, the cut. And when they picked John up five weeks later, he had a cut on his palm. And so that was another piece. Right. But the item that they tested for blood, which the skin was more than likely the item, it excluded him. But I suppose none of this matters when you have the word of a 70-year-old white lady who is a victim of a brutal assault. They asked her to pick me out in court while she was on the stand. 
the problem with eyewitness identification is it's unreliable, but it's incredibly powerful in court. You have a now 75-year-old woman who is so traumatized, the ER didn't even want to do an examination of her. Get on the stand and say, that's the man that did that to me. You know, the jury uh, at that point is done, right? If there's a few little things that they can put together, like, oh, that hair might be the same or, oh, and he had a cut too. That was enough. I mean, how do you combat that? Even pointing out that she wore glasses, that it was dark in there. It's debatable whether that helps or hurts your client when you have an emotionally charged moment like that. How are you going to try to contradict her, the the victim? Right. John, at that point, did you have any hope that the jury might actually still get this right? You know, me knowing that I didn't do it, I didn't have no doubt in my mind that I was going home. I was that young and I was so inexperienced that I thought I was going home. Can you take us back to that awful moment when they read the verdict? I just broke down and started crying. You know, I was convicted of rape, robbery, aggravated assault, and two counts of burglary. And they asked me, did I have anything to say? I just said I didn't do it. When they took me back to the holding cell, I know I broke down and started crying. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. 
chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. I was corresponding with a cousin of mine. You know, he, he just told me, you know, you know, God got his reasons for everything. You know what I'm saying? And he said it was a reason behind it, you know. For me, you know, it was a reason behind it. And I sought, I just sought that reason behind it, you know. I just accepted it at God's will and I moved forward. I couldn't go through that, that time, all that time that they had gave me feeling some type of way. And... I just had to learn how to how to survive in, inside the penitentiary. I found what they call a jailhouse attorney, and we tried, you know, by filing a habeas corpus against my lawyer that he didn't represent me right. We had requested, you know, for my transcript and all that, everything that was pertaining to my trial, but they, you know, the county of Meriwether didn't send me anything but a transcript. They said they didn't have nothing else to send me. And we filed an assistant accounting, and they denied that. So I pretty much laid down on it from that point on. So at that time, it was much easier to be granted parole, even with a sentence like yours, which was life plus 60 years. And usually, let's face it, they're not going to grant you parole without an admission of guilt and a show of remorse, even if you didn't commit the crime. That That's, <laughs> that's a detail that gets washed away. But it appears that they may have actually believed in your innocence. Yeah, after, I want to say, 11 years, I came up for parole. They told me in order to make parole that I would have to do some type of sex offender program. And I told the lady that, you know, I didn't do it. She said, Mr. White, unless you get into sex offender program, you ain't going to get out of jail. So they sent me to Metro up here in Atlanta, Georgia, where they had the programs at. And my mama came up and she said, go on, get in this program if it's going to help you get out. Even you had to tell a lie. And they told me the criteria for getting in the sex offender program, which you had to describe what took place during the crime. And so I told them, that, you know, I can't do that. I say, I can't imagine what took place during this crime. You know, I couldn't make that lie up. So I basically had just, just gave it up again, you know, and... uh so one day I came in from work and the warden called me to his office and asked me, he asked me why I was at his institution. And I told him that they had sent me there to participate in a sex physical program and that I couldn't, you know, participate in because I couldn't describe the crime. So he sent me on back to the dormitory and some strange things occurred. They told me to pack my stuff up that I was going to hospital out in Augusta, Georgia. A year prior, I had oposcopic surgery then on my knee. So one of the inmates that was coming in from work Happened to notice a piece of paper that had all the transfers on and everything. And he, he told me that. He said, John, you weren't going to Augusta Medical uh, Hospital. Say you were going to Ponce Leon Hadway House. And it, it totally shocked me that they, I was finna get out of prison. Had the parole board cut you a break or was it the warden pulling some strings? I don't know. And no one told you? Nobody told me. Okay, that's weird. So you got paroled, I guess, and now you were starting out on a tough road to reacclimate into society. There are a lot of obstacles to employment and getting IDs and things like that. And those are some of the many reasons why recidivism rates can be as high as, as they are in some places, not to mention that you turned to burglary in the past. And so where and how did you start that journey? When I first got out, I was up in Atlanta in the Hadway House. I 
paroled out of there to a rooming house. I got tired of the rooming house, and I moved to moved to Manchester. Did you move back in with your mom or your grandma? My mom, my my grandma had passed while I was uh, incarcerated. Sorry to hear that, but luckily you still had some family, right? Were your sisters around? No, most of them had they married and moved on. It was most of this, me and my mom. And my dad was still living at the time and uh, my niece. You know, John got the opportunity to come out on parole, but he came out as a sex offender, right? Who hires a sex offender? You know, it, it was a struggle when he was out on parole. So what did you do for work? And I understand you eventually went back to prison. When I was down back down here, I was doing arts and in work. And one day I was at McDonald's and seeing this guy and he pulled his wallet out and he had a lot of money in it, and me and another guy follow him and rob him. The other guy got caught up some kind of way, and he spe- he told, you know, what had happened, and uh, I turned myself in again, and I revoked my parole and uh, signed me back. I talked with the DA. He gave me 10 years, ran into what I already had, and that he wouldn't have no kind of negative rec- recommendation towards if I was to come up for parole again. Well, I can't say a lot of people are going to have a ton of sympathy for you on that situation, but it's like you said earlier about how you made peace with your wrongful conviction. You kind of felt deserving of it because of the wrong that you had done. And I want to point out that in nabbing the wrong guy for that ultra-violent rape and robbery all those years ago, this did a really terrible disservice to the entire community, not least of which to the victim, because the real perpetrator was still free. So now it's 1997, you're back to serve out this new sentence and your old one. And it's not until about four years later when the amazing Amy Maxwell became the founding executive director of the Georgia Innocence Project. Um, Can you run through how you all came upon John's case? The Georgia Innocence Project started in 2001. Obviously, we got cases coming to us fairly quickly. But as we were working on the cases, I started thinking, well, what about all those people who don't know that we could look at the cases? What about those people who've not heard that we exist? So in 2004, first of all, we tried to go through the prison hierarchy and try to get notices posted in prison, and they wouldn't do that. So what we did is we went through the Department of Corrections website and found everybody who was in prison for rape and sent them a letter. We sent about 1,200 letters and we got about 120. So we got about 10% return on our, our letter. And John was actually one of them. I didn't, I really didn't even know what to write, but I wrote it one a week or so later that Amy and them responded. We looked at his evidence and the hair evidence, they only really talked about one hair that they compared. And so we were under the impression from the crime lab report and from the testimony that there was only the one hair. But most importantly, we were trying to find that piece of flesh. In fact, we called it the piece of flesh case, right? Because it was such an unusual piece of evidence. You know, this was a straight up, if we could find this evidence, we would know who the perpetrator was. So I had an intern that went down to Mary other county looking for that piece of flesh, right? We just could not find it. We couldn't find it at the GBI. We couldn't find it anywhere. And so we just just kept on. And it's hard. People tell you that the evidence doesn't exist. Or they just haven't looked at all because either they didn't care or they were instructed to ignore such requests. Well, there might be that. 
So finally, we went in person to the clerk's office. And what they ended up finding was not the piece of flesh, but there were several of their hairs from the crime scene. Now, let me just say that hairs are, they're good evidence if they're good evidence. Right. If the hairs are pulled out from the root, then a DNA profile can be developed. Right. If they can give us information. But there's also, I mean, there could be other reasons hairs were there. There was another Georgia case that involved hairs. And the theory was that she did her wash at the laundromat and she might have picked up some random hairs there, which, of course, these are pubic hairs, right? Why are you picking up pubic hairs at the laundry? So anyway, but we were we were concerned. You know, if these hairs didn't match John, that helped us, but it might not walk him out of prison. So we, you know, had to tell John, we've got these hairs, we're going to test them. But so we sent those hairs for DNA testing. And we find out that the hairs don't match John. And we all pile in the car to staff members and our intern. Cliff Williams. Cliff had been working on the case almost from the beginning. I can't, where were you, John? I can't even remember where you were. Macon State. Macon State Prison. So it's like two hours away. We get there and we're getting all, we're putting all of our stuff in the trunk because you you can't take anything into the prison with you. And I get a call from the GBI and they tell me that there's been a CODIS match. And I'm standing in the parking lot going, oh my gosh, we were just going down to tell him we got the DNA but to hold on. And I thought, oh my God, we're going to get to go in and tell him he's coming home. And I said, who did it match? He goes, oh, it matched a man named James Parham. And at that point, my intern goes, James Parham? I think he was a suspect in this case. And so he pulls out the box, uh, you know, because we, of course, carry John's White's box all the way to the prison with us, you know, his, his file. And he's going through the file and he pulls out the photo of the live lineup, turns it over, and James Parham is actually in the lineup where she picks John White instead of James Parham. So we don't even know what to do with all this, right? So we get to go in and tell John all of this information. And I'm like, John, I don't know how quickly you're coming home, but you're coming home. Yeah, I'm looking at the photo right now, and we're going to link to it from the bio. I mean, oh my God, like John is in the number three spot, of course, because he was the target. And James Parham, sure enough, is right there in number five. Right. <laughs> um Actually, you know, at that institution I was at, me and him were roommates at that same institution at one time. What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm rarely at a loss for words, but that's insane. It was a strange thing happened throughout my whole journey concerning that. He was in the same room up with me, and I ended up with his Bible when I got out. It had his name on it. I gave it back to his sister to get him. But yeah, Amy came down and told me about, I was getting out, and when they did come to get me out, they came back, they rushed back there because they didn't want no media down at the institution. They rushed in, wanted to know was anybody come get me, and they went downtown and bought me some clothes and made sure I was dressed, and when my mom and them came with, to get me, they, they shook me on the way as quick as they could get me away from there. So, Amy, what were the machinations that you had to go through to finish the job and get him home? 
Well, it was so quick. So, you know, we get all the information, but so does the district attorney. And so, of course, when the district attorney, and at that time it was Pete Scandalakis, who is now the head of the Prosecuting Attorneys Council here in, in Georgia, and uh, he saw what we saw. And, of course, I'm on the phone with him and on the way back from the prison. I'm like, Pete, they got a CODIS match. What are you going to do? And he contacted the prison. And honestly, John... John's family got the notice to come pick him up. But literally four days later, he his folks are on the way down to Oglethorpe, Georgia to pick him up. So John was whew, home. So John, what was your first meal? Where did you go? What did you what did you do? It was like a blur. It, it was like a blur. I can't remember too much of only thing I can remember is looking back when we passed the prison and going out. I think I went to sleep. I think I went to sleep because something was happening. We went by some my sister's house, and then we went straight to Atlanta for press conferences and things of that nature. And uh, I had me some fried green tomatoes and some uh, <laughs> some okra. I've had been warning some. <laughs> and um, I remember that night that I got up and I walked. I walked up to a, a restaurant. And uh, I just got a chance to just look up at the sky, you know, and, and look at the stars and things. And, and just, it's, well, I could just see beyond that. I, I could, you know, I could get a chance to see the sky, you know, and, and the stars and the moon. Some of you didn't, very often, you didn't get to see too much of while you was in the penitentiary. So James Parham pled guilty, was sentenced to 20 years in prison on this rape, right? And then in 2009, the Georgia legislature authorized a payment of $500,000 in compensation to you. Now, no amount of money would ever be enough. And that's not even, I mean, that number is tiny compared to what it should be. Well, you know, Georgia don't have a compensation law. And uh, I I got $500,000 of compensation with restrictions that... I got to maintain some type of employment. I got to submit the drug testing every so often. I can't catch another felony, though I'll lose my compensation. I believe they put those stipulations in there because they don't want to get, they didn't want to give me the money in there. It was done for me to fail. You know, we asked for a million and something. They got it down to 750000 It passed one body of our legislature. Then it went to the other body of our legislation, and they, they rejected it. They revised it, and they agreed to all these stipulations. Yeah, you know, it's just crazy to me that anybody could look at someone in your shoes and not have an instinct to immediately want to help. But rather, their first instinct is, I'm going to fight this. I'm going I'm to fight to not right this wrong, to keep this wrong as wrong as it could be. Is there anything our audience can do for you? You know, right now, Given this opportunity to to say what I'm, I'm about to say, I just you know go vote. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Get these unsympathetic people that that's a part of our legislature, wait them up there, so we can get some of these bills passed that would aid in us getting you know the support we need. Not only me, but other people that's in you know similar situation. You know, you know I you know I'm gonna look out for me. But that's what we need. We need voters. We need those people that's in office that that that's voting against. This is a change to be removed. I hope our audience really takes those words to heart. And what about you, Amy? Any 
call to action for our audience? Well, I I think folks can obviously follow the Georgia Innocence Project, particularly about the legislation, but there it's also an exoneree fund. So if folks wanted to donate to the Georgia Innocence Project, they could donate and specify that it's for the exoneree fund. That would be great. Okay. So we'll have those action steps linked in the bio, which brings us to my favorite part of the show. It's called, of course, Closing Arguments. And this is the part of the show where I thank you both for being here and just sharing this unbelievable, horrible story. And with that, um, I'm going to kick back in my chair, turn my microphone off, leave my headphones on, um, and close my eyes and just listen for anything else you want to share with me and our amazing audience. I would highly recommend people Google the live lineup photo in John's case. When you get a chance to look at the live lineup, you're going to see how different James Parham looked from everybody else in that lineup. And it just goes to show how incredibly difficult it is to deal with eyewitness identification. I mean, the actual perpetrator was there live in front of her and she still picked the wrong man. So I think that we all need to be very cautious because as we said earlier, when the eyewitness takes the stand at trial and says that's the person, it is incredibly powerful, but we need to be very careful. The other thing is how really hard it is to come out of prison. You know, even though he comes out of prison an innocent man, prison does a number on you. Prison physically changes you, you and mentally for sure changes you. And there's really no support other than the people who rally around him. So, you know, we've got to got to do better because people are going to come out of prison and we want them to be able to succeed or they're going to, what's going to happen is they struggle and they end up committing a crime because they're struggling. I'm there. I'm, I'm thankful. I'm, I'm thankful for Amy. She knew I love her. <laughs> and her determination to, to start the Innocent Project. My experience being incarcerated is it's like PTSD for soldiers. I don't have too much trust for nobody. I'm pretty much a loner. I don't, you know, I don't deal with a whole lot of people. It's hard. It's hard. And uh, I just want the government to step up to the plate and establish our Social Security benefits, our medical benefits, and make these things possible so we can, you know, at least live, you know, when we do get sick or something like that, that we can go see a doctor. We constantly being denied even easier benefit because of we were wrongly convicted. We weren't given an opportunity to build up the, you know, to have no kind of social security now benefits built up. It would take them from us, so it should be given back to us. That's what I want. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number 1.
heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. <laughs> I love the dance challenges. <laughs> I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.